Good morning. Turn with me in the scriptures, if you haven't already, again to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is God's word, you can be seated. This morning we have what is really an opportunity And it's a holy thing to come before the Word of God. And my prayer for this morning is that God would allow our lives to be reoriented around His grace. Because His grace is so amazing that it demands my life and my all. And so, would you bow your heads with me again as we pray and allow God's Word to do what he would like it to. God, would you make this book come alive? Would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear? Would you bring us, God, into your presence? Would you usher us there today, Lord? More than anything, Lord, we need you. And so, God, the things that are on our mind, the things that are on our hearts, the things that uh, can cause us to be distracted even now, um, God, are things that we know that Jesus is there for, and we know that Jesus is better and bigger than those things. And so, God, would would you allow him and his work to move to the forefront? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. New Year's resolutions. Many of us, as we begin the new year, and as we began the new year, start to think about New Year's resolutions. How can I be a better me? Now, if you've been along this dog and pony show a little while, you realize that New Year's resolutions can oftentimes fall short, and it's because we struggle. It's because we're weak. It's because we need help. And we can also take comfort in the fact that though we are weak, even as Christians, we have a God who's there to help us, who's there to save us, who's there to breathe his life into us. 
And so maybe you've thought about your New Year's resolutions and how you can be a better you. Maybe that includes weight loss or healthy eating or financial freedom or how you can be more successful or how you can be more well-read or how you can have better time management or productivity. Those are all good things. But I think the question for our church and the reason why we're doing this series is how can we align our lives towards the enjoyment of Jesus more in 2017 than we ever have? How can we align our lives, reorient our lives so that we can enjoy Jesus more than we ever have? A good New Year's resolution is one that does reorient your life. And that's why it's hard. Because it's easy to make a plan and say, this is what has to be done. The hard part is the execution of that plan, isn't it? It's the discipline required in order to see that that plan comes about. This is why many New Year's Year's resolutions are short-lived, because you have the discipline for a short time, but the desire isn't there enough to keep the discipline going. And so our prayer today is, God, give me the desire. God, give me the desire for you, that I would love the Lord Jesus with all my heart, all my life, and all of my strength, so that my life begins to look Godward in the direction to where we can enjoy Jesus more than ever. Habits of grace are not about our doing. Habits of grace are what we enjoy. And Christianity isn't a list of rules. It's not even a a list of habits. Christianity is about a life-transforming relationship with a person, and the person is Jesus. And so the habits of grace are that which align us to go and pursue that relationship to where he's our all in all, and he desires to bring that transformation so that we would fall more in love with him. I want us to think about our lives for a moment, where we're at today the challenges that we face, the joys, who's a part of our family, who's a part of our lives, if we're married, if we're single, if we're having trouble going in the workplace tomorrow, whatever that might look like for you, I'm convinced for you and for me that God has us in that place within our life circumstances, within the people that are around us and the things that are going on in our life because he has given us those things so that we might more fully depend upon him in your marriage, in your singleness, in your occupation, in your sickness, in your health, in your wealth, in your poverty, that God has you in that place, in this moment, to more fully rely on, grasp for him, and depend upon him. And that is the essence of the Christian life. It is fighting for joy in a way that does not replace grace. That's what John Piper says. Fighting for joy in a way that does not replace grace. Because Christianity is not, after all, a list of rules or regulations, but it is God's initiating love through the grace of 
Jesus Christ. This is why we started in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 as we talk about the habits of grace. We start with the grace of God. This is the starting point for our life, God's grace. So right now when we talk about what we as Christians are called to be, how we as Christians are called to live, what we as Christians are called to do, it actually doesn't start with us, but it starts with him. It doesn't start with what we do, but it starts with what Christ has done. And Paul brings this to the church in Ephesians, and he says to them these powerful words. If you, if you look back just a few verses from where we got started, Paul unpacks for them the depths and the majesty and the riches of Christ's marvelous love. He talks about this Savior and how this Savior is seated at the right hand of God. And through this Savior, all those who trust in him and believe in him gain the inheritance of his wealth. That the believers of God get what he deserves. And that the believers of God are given this, the beauty and majesty of this wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. And he unpacks the beauty of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says in chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And you were dead. This is the way you were, says Paul to the church of Ephesians. This is the way you were. You were dead. Categorically, the Bible only knows two types of people. There are people that are dead in their sins, or there are people that are alive in Christ. And Paul says to the church of Ephesians, those who have claimed their faith in him, belief in him, he says, this is the way you were. Don't forget that. Don't forget where God has taken you. Don't forget what God has saved you from. Don't forget what God has saved you for. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin, because it is an aberration against God, meaning that it goes against all of God's glory. It goes against his holiness. It misses the mark completely. And if God is going to be a God of justice, which you want for your God to be a God of justice, because if he was not, then he wouldn't be God. This God of justice, to be who he is, must punish sin. And Paul states it really clearly. The trespasses deserve death. The sins that miss the mark, the things that you do that do not honor and glorify God deserve death. Now, a lot of us think about sin in terms of morality. Am I doing good? Am I doing bad? Am I following the Ten Commandments? Am I not running stoplights? Am I making sure that I'm not speeding? We, we think of it as a list of rules or regulations, but Paul gives this command in the book of Colossians where he says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, giving thanks to Christ Jesus. This is a command. 
And so if you look at that command and you look at your life, then you got to say, how am I doing? How have I done? Have I lived my life for the glory of God? Do I spend every waking moment of my life to be lived for the glory of God? This is what God has designed us for. This is what God wants for us. But yet the wages of sin is death because deep down inside, we don't want God on the throne, but we want to be there. Deep down inside, we don't want our lives to be all about him, but we want it all to be about us. You know the song, it's all about me, Ryan, and all this is for me. I have my family sing that with me over and over again. No, no, this is not. We come and we sing the praises of our God. We come and sing the praises of King Jesus because life is all about him. And we once walked in which it was all about us. And that's what Paul says here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen, we're not sinners, or we we don't sin. I should read my notes here because it's a little bit complicated for me to say anyway. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The problem is not our actions, but the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We're, Paul, um, David says in Psalm 51.1, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. There's the sins of Adam. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in the first sin from the first representative of humanity, Adam, sinned by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said, do not do that, Adam did. And in doing so, Adam was ruined. And not only was Adam ruined, but all humanity was ruined because Adam stood as a representative of a traitorous race. And the difference between me and Adam, or you and Adam, or our kids and Adam, or our uncle, or our aunt, or your neighbor, or anybody else than Adam isn't very much because we would have done what Adam did. And so therefore humanity is corrupted. And God's curse went far to all humanity. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter 6, you see that God says, I just want to be done with it. I want to be finished. But this mercy in God compelled him to give the free gift. So that the corruption of humanity would become the righteousness of Christ. That that which looked irredeemable would be redeemed. They followed the course of the pattern of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. What is that? What does Paul mean when he says that? The man named J.B. Phillips, he says, You were drifting along on the stream of this world's ideas of living. You were drifting along on the stream of this world's ideas of living. Means like a fish is 
dead in the water and carried only by where the current would take it without any power to move in a different direction or move in any way, it's carried along by the streams of this world, by the streams of this culture, by the streams of the things around us. This is why what we watch on TV and what we do uh, for entertainment can be so dangerous This is why we have to be very careful about our intake of the world around us because we have to ask the question, am I just drifting? Am I being swayed? Am I like a dead fish being carried by the currents of this world? And the currents of this world are always moving in one direction, away from God. That's what it means to follow the pattern of this world or the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, his demonic influence. Because the world's idea of living is life without thought of God. That's the world's idea of living. It is life without thought or regard for God. And are we being caught up in that? Do we realize that we were caught up in that? That our goodness notwithstanding, we were caught up in that. Because our goodness notwithstanding isn't life. But anything that we do that is even good is an abomination before God because it's not done for the glory of God. This is why we need redemption. This is what it means for total depravity. It's not as, that we're as bad as we could be. It's that we weren't ever what God has meant for us to be. And so therefore, we're corrupted to the core. And this is why we need redemption. Verse 3, he says, Among whom the sons of disobedience, if you look back just a bit, among whom we were all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So on one side you have the Pittsburgh Steelers, and on the other side you have the Miami Dolphins, right? They're the sons of disobedience. Sorry, I'm really excited about the game tonight. I didn't want, or this afternoon, didn't want that to shine through just a little bit. <laughs> Any Steelers fans in here, by the way? I didn't call you out, Dave, but I call her out. So there we go. Um, And um, um, but there are those who uh, who walk as enemies, living life contrary to the will of God, living life snubbing the nose of God, saying, "No, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm not going to have. I'm not going to live my life in regard for you." And those who live within those desires of the flesh that say life is about me and I'm going to live for number one. Those are the sons of disobedience. Those are the children of wrath. Those who are dead in sin. Think think about the, the way the world opposes Christianity. And one of the reasons why the world opposes Christianity is this whole idea of sin. And that sin leads to death. Because we don't want to be told that we're a bad person, right? We don't want to be told that we need something, that we're deficient of something that we can't do in and of ourselves, right? This is why we read self-help books, because we want to figure life out. We want to have all the answers. 
This is why the world opposes Christianity, because it tells us that you have no ability to have right relationship with God in and of your own strength. This is why the Pharisees had such a problem with Jesus, because Jesus called them out for their sin. Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Meaning that those who realize that they're sick are those who will cry out for the help of a doctor. Alistair Begg, an author and pastor, says the diagnosis of humanity is that we are either sick and we really need a doctor, or we are well and all we really need is a few more vitamins. Much of the world wants to even see Christianity as something acceptable, not saying that we're sick in need of a doctor, but that we just need a pep in our step. We just need an energy drink. We just need a boost in our way of thinking, in our way of living. We all see that there's a problem, but we don't know that that problem has come in very deep and needs to be cleansed from the inside out. We don't realize that there's a cancer that will kill us And so we disregard the diagnosis of the doctor and we try to get a second opinion and the second opinion tickles our ears and we say, oh, okay, I'm not as bad as I thought I was. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. You were dead, says Paul. There's a graveyard across the street from my house and I can't have a conversation with any of those people. I've tried a few times. You can't talk to dead people. Uh, uh, We're drifting along in the current of the way of this world. But we don't realize that there's life. And why don't we realize that? Or why can't dead people realize that? Because they're dead. This is why the world opposes God. Because there's no ability to do otherwise. This is why when you get mad when a non-Christian threatens our faith. We think, why is this so difficult? It's because they're dead. They oppose God. Why can't the world see things the way I think the world should see things? Because they're dead. And what we need is for the doctor to come and to remove the deadly cancer and to give us the proper diagnosis so that we can have life. A.W. Tozer says, if you don't know where you have been, how in the world are you going to determine where we're going? That's the only reason for looking back. We do not look back in order to go back. Rather, we look back so that we can make sure that we're going forward. This is why we go to the bad news. That's the bad news. And the bad news is that we're children of wrath, deserving of God's eternal punishment in hell, that we are separated from God. And why do we focus on the bad news? Well, we focus on the bad news because out of that bad news comes the good news. And if we don't look at the bad news, how in the world are we going to see the good news? If someone doesn't see that they were once dead, how in the world are they going to come alive? And so we look back in order to look forward. One of the things my daughter Lily has a hard time with is when we try to correct her. We won't even spank her. She would probably rather have a spanking than have a conversation. Lily, come and have a conversation with me. Let's talk about what you did for a moment. She would be, just spank me and put me in my room. I don't even want to talk about it. Sometimes that's us. 
I don't want to hear where I was. I don't want to hear what I did. But if you don't know what you did, if you don't know that you have been a son of disobedience and that you have abandoned God and sought your own way of living, then you're going to continue to abandon God and seek your own way of living. That's going to continue. This is why we look back so we can look forward and make sure that we're heading in the right direction. And the only way we can move into the right direction is that we've been made alive in Christ. And this is one of the most powerful, shortest phrases in all of Scripture. I'm convinced it's one of the most powerful, shortest phrases in all the world. Uh, Verse 4, but God, you were this way deserving of God's judgment, deserving of hell as the just condemnation for your sin, but God. What a wonderful conjunction. Most of the time, that word but in a conversation, in a serious conversation, is like, hey, you know, you're really a good friend, but could you do this differently? Hey, you know, hey, kids, um, uh, I, I really like the way that you treated your sister yesterday, but today you've not done a very good job of it. It's very different here. No, you really bad. You really, you, you really are, are hurting, but God, who is rich in mercy. This is where we see that God deals with the heart of the problem by dealing with his son, Jesus Christ, by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. Justice is where we want for those to get what they deserve, right? None of us are going to stand before God and cry out for ourselves justice. None of us. We're all going to cry out for mercy. Everybody at the throne of God. And what God did through his son Jesus Christ is he gave him the justice that we deserve and gave us mercy that we don't deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You deserve justice, but you didn't get it because Christ took the justice of God and he gave you God's mercy. And do you know where it comes from? The wellspring of God's love. God's love is his motivation for his mercy. It's not that we were lovable. It's not that we were deserving of his love. He goes on to verse 5 and he says that even when you were dead in your trespasses, Deserving this condemnation, God loved you with his everlasting love. The nature of God's love comes not from his people being lovable, but that he is a lovable father. And the only way we can come from death to life is that God calls that forth through his son. It's Lazarus who's dead in the grave and he's there for a few days and Jesus is slow going, getting there. And Martha's saying, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Lazarus is starting to stink. And Jesus comes and it's already been a few days and he's dead in the tomb. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he lives. He doesn't say, hey, Lazarus, take a step towards me. He doesn't say, hey, Lazarus, just give me your hand and I'll save you. 
No, Lazarus can't do that because he's dead, but because Jesus' great love for Lazarus so compelled him and he knew what he would accomplish for him on the cross, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth and live. The only way a dead man can live is if they come alive in Christ by the word of God calling forth into their heart's life, breathing that life in them. Even when you were dead in our trespasses, made alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know the story of the prodigal son? The son realizes that his dad is a man of great means. And he thinks, you know, I could have this world at my fingertips if I had my father's wealth. And one day I'm going to get my father's wealth. But why don't I just cash in right now and take my father's wealth, the inheritance that's due to me now, and I will go and live life where the world is at my fingertips. And so the prodigal son says, Dad, I'll take my money now. And he takes that money and he squanders it in Las Vegas. And he lives a life of sin. He lives a life of pleasure. And it leads him to the pigsty with nothing. And as he's feeding the pigs, he's realizing that, man, the food that the pigs are eating looks pretty good. And he says, what am I doing? If I was a servant in my father's household, I would eat better than this. So he rehearses this speech and he says to himself, he he rehearses this speech saying uh, uh, that, that his father would give him a place as a servant in his household. And so as he goes home, his father sees him. And his father sees this servant, this son that was once lost coming home. His father runs out to meet him. And as the son practices his speech while his father's coming, his son says to the father, can I just be a servant in your household? And you know what the father would have been right to say? He would have been just to say it. He would have even been merciful to say it. Would say, okay, yeah, you could have the cabin out in the back. You could have the servant quarters. Make sure that you're up at 7 a.m. giving me my coffee and my donuts and that you're taking care of your mom and your brother and all that kind of stuff. And he could, he would be very merciful to treat him that way and to say, you're my servant. That's mercy, isn't it? But mercy filled with love is where the traitor doesn't just become a servant, but it sits next to the king on the throne. That's what love does with mercy together. That's what God does before us. God doesn't just make us his servants. God makes us sons and daughters. That we were once lost, but now we've been found. That we were dead and now we're alive. This is what God's grace has done for us. It has made us alive and it seated us in the heavenly places. It's amazing. The king has taken the traitor and he's seated him next to him on the throne of glory. Only the gospel. Only the gospel. The world doesn't know mercy and love like that. But the gospel does. And the gospel lavishes it before us. Why did he do this? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that in the days to come, so that when generation after generation passes, so that when the 
trump resounds and those who are called home to Jesus in glory, when all the world will one day see that we are a display case for God's glory and his mercy. This is why the habits of grace are so important. Because we are God's trophies of mercy. We're his trophies of grace. And this is what God has called us, that he might show the world this. A world that is lost and broken and needing of forgiveness, that forgiveness is there. And forgiveness is there through you, through me. Think about the way you once walked. Think about the way you once lived. Think about the testimony of God's grace in showing that you can be an instrument of God's glory to show the immeasurable riches and kindness of God. We read stories of these people in the Bible. We read stories of these people in history, but yet we are one of these stories. Like the thief on the cross who moments before his death repented and Jesus says you grant uh, he grants him entrance into paradise because in a moment he turned to God. He is someone who showed us the lavish riches and wealth and kindness of God. We are that to this lost and broken world. This is why the habits of grace cause us to realize that, to live in that, and to show that we are God's children that have been saved and redeemed. Verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Verse 8 shows us that the start of a life in Christ is all about Jesus and has been done by Jesus. That before we were dead and now we're alive. This is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We will know nothing of mercy unless we realize that we are before the divine judge asking for mercy. It's one thing to be an innocent bystander watching mercy being given in the courtroom to somebody who doesn't deserve it there. It's another thing when you're the one being judged and you cry out for mercy from the darkness and you're given light. This is one of my fears for my family. This is one of my fears for us as a church. This is one of the things I pray for us is that... in. A hindrance to understanding the mercy of God is that we might think that we're not that bad of a person or that our sins aren't that bad. We watch the nightly news and we say, man, I'm not as bad as this guy. But if you could see that your sins sent Jesus to the cross, you'll see the depths and punishment that you deserve and you'll see that he bore it for you. And we would not look at our sin in a way that we simply pass it off. But we would look at it sin like John Newton, who was the slave trader that God saved and say, amazing grace, oh, what a wretch that I am. This is the grace of God that saves us. 
Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Grace is what we, when we get when we don't deserve. And what we get is the life that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again and gave it to us. This is the free gift. It's all about Him. And the response of the believer is faith. Even faith is a gift. Even the fact that you could believe in this is a gift. Because the supernatural work of death to life cannot be done by a dead person. The supernatural work from death to life has to come from one who is alive. And Jesus is alive. And he opens your heart and he gives you faith as a gift. And it's faith alone, in God alone, in Christ alone, for salvation alone. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. No one is in heaven right now saying that I got myself here. All those who are with Jesus in heaven are marveling at his grace and they're boasting in the cross of Jesus. That's why Paul the Apostle, one of the most influential people outside of Jesus, the most influential man that has influenced the world today, Paul says, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. He brought me from death to life and so I boast in him. Verse 10. For he is, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. It's interesting how we're talking about the habits of grace, and we've not gotten to a place where anything is required of us except for the mere belief that it is true. That God gives us in and of itself. But here's where Paul says, this is the reorienting factor that begins to change your life and shape it in a new direction. For you are God's workmanship. You've been reborn. You've been created in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and the new has come. You are a new creation. You are God's workmanship. You have been brought from death and now you are alive and now you display God's masterpiece and the world is meant to marvel at God when they look at you. That word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means poem, which means we are literally God's artwork. We have been sketched out by his divine hand to be his masterpiece, to show his glory. We have been created for good works. We have been created to do the will of God. And so when we receive God's grace, our whole life is reoriented. Earlier I mentioned John Newton. John Newton was a man who was a slave trader. He was a vile man. And yet he wrote one of the most prolific songs that is still sung to this day. Amazing grace. 
I once was blind, but now I see. This is what the grace of God does for us. It reorients us. It moves us towards God for the enjoyment of Jesus. And over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we, as God's people who have been transformed by God's grace, can continue to sing of God's amazing grace. That God, through what Jesus Christ has done, grants us access to God through His Word. Access to God through prayer. And access as the people of God through belonging to His body, the church. We have that opportunity. and We get to walk in it. We get to enjoy Jesus realizing that we've been created for something far greater and far better than that which we see today. John Newton says, after being and living in God's grace, wrote this later on in his life, he says, I'm not what I ought to be. Not even what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. As we reflect on what the work of Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in communion, I want us to have a place where we realize that Maybe you're not where you want to be. Maybe you're not where you had hoped to be. But today, if God has called you forth from death to life, by the grace of God, you are what you are. And God's not complacent. He's not done with you yet. He is continuing to renew you, to transform you, and to set you high so that the world will marvel at His goodness and glory in you. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not, I'm not what I have hoped I would be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray and take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your pardon. God, may this grace that we talked about this grace that's a free gift that saves us that redeems us that makes us holy God would that grace move right now in our hearts God if there are those who are unbelieving in here who are like a dead fish going in the way of the current Lord would you call forth life in them Father for those who are alive but have been swimming in a different direction, Lord. I pray that you would cause them, God, to run to you, to cling to your cross. And God, you would allow in these next few weeks, God, us to fall more in love with Jesus, but not only for the next few weeks, for the rest of our lives. May the habits of grace be in place so that we would know Jesus more fully and enjoy him all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. Take communion. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your forgiver, leader, and Lord, communion is for you. The table is set.
you would say you don't know who Christ is, I encourage you to reflect in your chair what God may be doing. And if you should need prayer, you can go to the guest connection table where we'd be happy to pray for you. At Crosspoint, we take communion by falling down the aisles, taking the bread, dipping in the cup, and receiving the Lord's Supper in that way. His broken body and shed blood spilled for you, broken for you, so that you might experience His grace. Let's worship.